After that song, I was ready to preach. I just interrupted for a weather bulletin, however. We, the elders checked things out and looked at what's going to happen the rest of the day, and we will not reassemble tonight uh, at 6 o'clock. We had singing planned, but uh, we will not do that. So stay safe at home, please, tonight. All right. If you're visiting with us and you looked at the handout and saw the title for this sermon, you probably thought, that's an odd topic for a Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, quite a few people have thought that was an odd topic and asked me, are you really preaching on that on Thanksgiving weekend? Uh, yeah, a couple of reasons. First, Thanksgiving's over. Uh, you don't get do-overs, so I couldn't help you do it any better. If you, if you gave thanks well on Thursday, uh, more power to you, but I couldn't help you this morning on that. Uh, secondly, uh, I sense a problem that needs to be talked about. If you were 100% truthful, I could prove that right now. I'm going to try it anyway, even though I know some of you will refuse to raise your hands or participate. But let me ask you two questions. Uh, first of all, how many of you engaged in Thanksgiving and prayer on Thursday? Did just close to 100%. Okay, second question. How many of you are worried, concerned, anxious about all the mess that's going on in the world, especially in the Middle East, and ISIS beheading people and refugees wanting to come here that might be terrorists and terrorist attacks and all of that? How many of you are worried and anxious and think about that all the time? Okay. Probably 80% held your hands up that time. All right, there's the problem. I told you I sensed a problem and I disproved it because Philippians 4, 6 says, Christians, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And yet a whole room full of Christians said, I was full of thanksgiving and prayer, and I'm anxious and worried. That's a problem, depending on how we define it and how much we consider worry and anxiety. And I know there's all the ways we could argue around it. But that's why I want to preach on that today or talk about it. In fact, Toby, this past week when he saw the topic, he asked me some questions. Toby asked a lot of questions, asked a lot of good questions. And he asked me, he said, how do you decide... When to preach on some current event, some current topic, something like you seem to be getting ready to do on Sunday. And I thought about that a while. At first I told him I very rarely do it. Very rarely, probably three or four times in 20 years or so, 30 years, can I think of doing it. I did it once when our uh, president was being impeached for lying. I did it once after 9-11, a couple other times maybe. And the answer I finally gave him was, well, I think I probably do it when I really sense, when I have a strong feeling that the people, my flock, I consider you my flock and I'm to pastor, teach you about things. And when I sense that 
you're really seeking an answer. When you're really not sure what you ought to think about something. When you're really concerned about what's going on around us. Then I think I tend to address that. The day, Sunday, I guess it was September 16th, after 9-11, 2001. The whole country was seeking an answer. Everybody, people wanted churches open all week so they could go pray. We were full that Sunday because people came that hadn't come in years and decades. Something happened in the world and they said, we got to know what's going on here. We got, we got to know how to respond to this. We got to know how to think about this. What is God doing? Or what is God not doing? And I think recently Christians have become more concerned with the, the way this country is turned morally and a number of other ways. And I think a couple of weeks ago when the, uh, the Paris attacks happened, it just seemed to me things kind of tipped over the edge. People just kind of said, what, what is going on here? We had a preacher's meeting a couple of days after that weekend, and, and the preachers all started talking about it. How do we deal with this? What do we tell people? And they were saying, I see this on Facebook, and I see this on Facebook. I, I see people commenting this way, and I see them commenting this way, and, and I, I don't know what my congregation's doing. I don't know what they're thinking. They're, they're at two extremes. They said, I'm looking on there, and part of the congregation is saying, bomb them to eternity. Which sounds a little unchristian when you think about it. And the other half is saying, oh, just love them. We've got to love them. It's the only answer. Fighting won't do any difference. You just got to love them. And I'm guessing if you're at one of those extremes, the other extreme kind of irritates you. you know, is that how Christians operate? Don't we have a better answer than that? Now, I'm not going to tell you, here's the Christian position this morning. But I'm going to give you a few thoughts to consider wherever you are. Whenever you think about this, however concerned or not concerned you are, let me give you some advice. Wherever you are, first of all, one thing to do, I think, is add a little historical perspective. Okay? If you hadn't ever heard it or read any history or hadn't been taught it in school, I'm sorry, but look at some history. Just think about it. I mean, what seemed to kind of tip things over the edge was... ISIS killing 129 people. And I don't mean to trivialize all of the horrors that ISIS and others with different names but of the same ilk, the beheadings and all that that goes on. I don't mean to demean that anyway or trivialize it. But has anybody ever heard of Attila? You know, of Hitler? Idi Amin? This is earth, folks. There's evil people. There always have been. There always will be until Jesus comes back. And 
Some people think, yeah, but it's worse than ever now. Yeah, this has got to be, Jesus has got to come back pretty soon. I hate to even think this thought, but let me just remind you, the last time it got bad enough for God to deal with it, he waited till it got to eight. Eight good people left. We got a long ways to go to eight. I hope he doesn't wait that long this time. But he did once. We say, but look at what's going on. Look at how they're killing people and how many people they're killing. And I don't know how many people the jihadists have killed in 15 years since 9-11. But I know Hitler killed 30 million people in 12 years. Stalin killed about 40 million people in 20 years. Chairman Mao killed 60 million people. In about 25 years. Maybe it seems worse to us because we see it right there on TV. You know, I mean, we get to listen to the gunshots and see people running and hanging out windows and, and all of that. We saw it as it was happening. Well, I know it makes it seem worse in some way, but this is still just this old world. You know, if I thought this world was my home, I'd be really discouraged. And I think Christians kind of ought to look at it that way. Look at history. This is a tough old world. I mean, yes, 129 innocent people were killed in Paris. But just imagine for a moment you were a Christian in first or second century Rome. Try that one on for historical perspective. Nero, Caligula, as the Caesar. They killed Christians for sport. Caligula had garden parties, and he lit the gardens with Christians' bodies and set a flame on tops of poles. I mean, this, this is the guy that rode in chariot one. He had the commander-in-chief. This is who you had to obey. This is the kind of guy it was. Historical perspective might lighten us up a little bit. And what I'm going to say next is hard. I know it's hard to say after a century of Hitler and Mao and Stalin and all that I just told you. But I really believe Christians in America, us, those that have been around for more than 20 years anyway, I think we've had the best 150, 200 years of any Christians in history. Anywhere, anytime, anyway. Because we were fortunate enough to grow up in a country whose ideals and values were almost identical to our Christian values and ideals. Our country supported what we believed in and what we did. No other Christians in history have ever had anything like that. So we've had that, but maybe that's what makes it so scary, is after we've had that for so long, it seems 
that our government has turned against our God, doing everything to get God out of the picture. And the pagans at the gate say that their God tells them to come behead us. That's scary stuff. But even with all that, we're still better off than Peter and Paul. <laughs> Historically perspective, we, we've got it made. So add a little historical perspective. Now, let me address something else. I think some of us are tied up so much with this country, and it's bad to feel that we're under attack, but we see all that's going on, and we don't see that the country is responding to it particularly. Uh, I think a lot of us think our leaders have no idea what's going on. They have no plan. And some of you thought I just got political, but I didn't. I didn't get political because ISIS or whatever name you want to put on the bad guys currently, they've been attacking us at least since 1983. At least since then. And that's about 30 years, and that's five presidents and three Republicans and two Democrats and almost exactly 50-50 on the number of years that they were in power, and none of them. We, we've got to this, don't try to tell me we've got a plan, because we don't even know what to call them yet. After 30 years. I mean, that's discouraging, folks. And if that seems really, really, really discouraging to you, my second point and what I would advocate is you ask yourself who you're trusting. Ask who you're trusting in. Okay, The verse that was read for us just a moment ago, Psalm chapter 20, verse 6 through 8. The psalmist said, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and horses. But we trust in the name of our Lord. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Okay? The psalmist looked around and said, man, things are a mess. <laughs> they got more horses and chariots than we do, but we got God. Ask yourself who you're trusting. I mean, the stories, we could, we could preach all week just on stories that illustrate that. Elijah, the first one that popped in my mind. Elijah lived in a time when there was an evil king, and he was outnumbered. There were 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah. And he said, let's see who God, whose God is more powerful. And he actually challenged all 850 of those prophets. He said, let's go up Mount Carmel. He got up there. He said, you guys ready? Let's get it on. 850 to 1. Yeah. He knew how it was going to come out. He knew who God was. He knew who their God was. He, he knew a secret that they didn't know. Luckily, we know the secret. Paul wrote it down for us. It's in Ephesians 6. Verse 12, he said, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. That's not our enemy. 
We wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forms of evil in the heavenly places. We have a spiritual enemy. And I know that spiritual enemy has co-opted men to do evil things. But when it all comes down to the end, it's a spiritual battle. And our God is God. Elisha, the guy that trained under Elijah, he learned well. Great story in Second Kings 6. <clears throat> Elisha's servant opens the door in the morning, went out to see what the weather was, and there's an army surrounding him. Come to kill Elisha. He runs back inside and says, Master, we're in a heap of trouble. Elisha goes out. And I don't even think Elisha went out. He just said, he just told him. He said, oh, we got more on our side than they got. And the servant said, what? <laughs> and Elisha said, oh, I forgot to tell you the secret. And he prayed. He said, Lord, open his eyes so he can see like I can see. And the servant goes and he opens the door and he looks. And the Bible says that all around Elisha, it was full of horses and chariots of fire. <clears throat> all around Elisha. See, Elisha wasn't concerned, but he knew that. Poor servant couldn't see it till he opened his eyes. And I mean, there's story after story. In the Bible about that, about people who trust in God and could have, instead of what they can see. If you're really, really worried about where we are and how we're responding or not or whatever, ask yourself who you're trusting. Now, third point and last point I want to make is there some folks as the preachers were talking and all that, and I've seen a little bit of it, but they, they said there's people that, you know, are posting on Facebook and stuff that the answer is to love the terrorists into being civilized. You know, and the refugees that want to come here, well, well, those poor people, what do you mean? There might be terrorists in it. doesn't matter. It's a Christian thing to do to let them in. I mean, they're just like the pilgrims coming in 1620. Yeah, there's people that are saying that. Now, if you've got a problem with that, of how to worry about terrorism and all that's going on on one side, but think you've got to act like a Christian somehow and can't do anything in return, my suggestion is that we all... Check our allegiance. Yeah. A little historical perspective. Who are we trusting? And then I think the real problem, and the most important one I want to talk about, is, is check our allegiance. Now, that's not going to be the answer you expect, but stay tuned. We're going to see if we can figure this out. Let's illustrate it. Here's one allegiance. Too slick to sit there. There's an allegiance. Stable. Another allegiance. Everybody in here would say, I cling to the old rugged cross. I hear you sing it every few weeks. 
I cling to the old rugged cross. That's where my hope is. That's what I trust. That's my allegiance. But we'd also all stand up and say, I pledge allegiance to the flag. Now, I think if we think through this, this will help us a lot on how we respond to this and what we think about what's going on in this old mess of the world. Jesus settled it. Jesus said, you give Caesar his due and you give God his due. That was Jesus' answer. He admitted they were separate. They ought to be separate. He said, you give Caesar his due, you give God his due. Now, let me propose this. That was really easy when Caesar was feeding your brothers and sisters to the lions. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they were so far apart. The kingdom of God and the kingdom people lived in then. That was easy. Okay, I'll give Caesar his taxes, but no more. If a soldier tells me I've got to do this or that and orders me to do something, I will do it, but I will just do the minimum. And if it finally comes to the point where Caesar tells me to do something uh, that is against my God, to deny Jesus or something like that, then I'll die for it. But these two allegiances are way far apart. I mean, that was easy back then, wasn't it? It's harder now. Because for 200 years, our nation's values are very close, have been very close to Christians' values, very supportive of. We fought two world wars against clearly evil enemies. And the heroes of those wars equated to patriotism and equated to doing what ought to be done. And it all gets kind of commingled until the allegiance gets a little hazy. It's kind of all wrapped up together. This is a Christian nation, we used to say. And we kind of put everything together like this where it's hard to tell, well, where the priority is. Who's in front and who's behind and, and where is my allegiance? You understand how that's happened to us, I think? Well, it wasn't always like that, folks. The last few years have been like that. But it wasn't always. During the Civil War, uh, David Lipscomb and a lot of other restoration preachers thought through this. And they said, this civil war has got brothers in Christ killing brothers in Christ. There's something wrong with that picture. Yeah, that just isn't right. They reasoned. And they reasoned it through all the way to the logical conclusion that these two allegiances are way, 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 way apart. Lipsom's conclusion was, you don't have allegiance to this. In fact, a Christian should not even vote. Should have nothing to do with that kingdom. Because we're citizens of this kingdom. Okay? And there's people today who still 
think that and say you shouldn't pledge allegiance to the flag because we're members of the Christian kingdom. And I understand that reasoning. Lipscomb took it to the point where Christians shouldn't even vote. They lived in a different kingdom, and they shouldn't, if they weren't participating in that kingdom, then they ought to expect them to be way different and just worry about God's kingdom. Okay. Now, if you think through that, then today there are a number of people, not as many as back in Lipscomb's day and all that, who are pacifists who believe that Christians are separated from earthly kingdoms and take very literally the things Jesus said about turning the other cheek, no matter what. Pray for your enemies. Pray for those who despitefully use you. Love everyone. Love your neighbor. Welcome everybody. It's your Christian duty. There's people there. And that's okay with me. That's, that's fine with me. If somebody takes that position and is true to it. I think it's okay with Jesus. And it may very well be the right Christian position. But I'm not quite there yet. It may be the right one. I'm just not there. I'm... A little bit more like the the old Quaker the story is told of. Quakers are historically pacifists. story told about the old Quaker that confronted the intruder out in his farmyard. And he said, Brother, I would not hurt thee for the world, but thou standest where I am about to shoot. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I understand that pure pacifism might be what Jesus really meant for us to be. I'm just not quite there yet. And it may be because I've got too much American in me. You know, that's the way I've been raised. It would be easier to be pacifistic if you lived in Caligula's Rome. Because you were raised that way. But I've been raised and I've got individual rights. That I got a right to self-defense. That I got property rights. That I can practice my religion any way I want to. That's the way I've been raised. So I've got a lot of that in me. Now, am I sure which one is right? No. I mean, people have been arguing about it for centuries. And it, to me, it always comes down to an individual decision. If you read the whole Bible and conclude that You ought to be a pacifist and do nothing to withstand any kind of evil. Okay with me. You just got to bear the consequences. All right. Well, we got to move here. Back to the topic. If a Christian chooses pacifism, if they're on that wavelength and believe that's what the Bible tells them to be and all that, uh, then what they believe, it may seem that that ought to apply to foreign policy and how they vote and all of that. 
In fact, I saw one on thing on Facebook. I forget exactly how it was worded, but something about if you tell the refugees they can't come into America, you're spitting in Jesus' face. Okay, equating this pacifism kind of idea with nationalism and what the country ought to do. There's two huge mistakes in that. One is that God ordained governments for a reason. Governments are completely different than individual Christian behavior. If you believe Christians should not respond to evil in any way and take whatever they give you, that's, that's fine. But that doesn't have anything to do with government. Because government is expressly ordained by God, Paul said in Romans 13. So government does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. That's what government is established for. They are supposed to take care of evil people. Keep evil people from bothering righteous people. Okay? God established governments. He ordained them. Romans 13 says there isn't one that exists that exists without his approval. Now, I know they don't always do that well. They don't do things right. And the Bible says, not on our timeline, but the Bible says God deals with nations. He raises them up and he brings them down. He's in control. Not on our time schedule. We look at some and say, why doesn't he take that off the earth? Yeah, well, he will deal with it. It's the way he does things. But the intention of governments, why he ordained them, is to deal with evil people with the sword. Or in today's words, with bombs and missiles and drones and Navy SEALs. To kill evil people. What the government's supposed to do. Yeah? Completely separate from your pacifistic Christian mentality. Yeah? Now, let me add one thing to that. First Timothy two, one and two. Paul told Timothy, first of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. What do you pray for, Paul? That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Paul said we are supposed to pray to God that governments do what they're supposed to do so we can have a peaceful life. Okay? Completely separate from whatever you feel about your allegiance to pacifism or not. Okay? Governments must take care of evil. In your neighborhood, you're supposed to love your neighbor. You're supposed to pray for their soul's salvation. But you're also supposed to pray that government will deal with anybody who would do you harm. Child molesters, carjackers, burglars, jihadists, I don't care who, would do you harm. Government's supposed to deal with them. And you're supposed to pray that they do deal with them. I said there were two big mistakes in taking a pacifistic position and thinking the government should do things that way. Second one is, besides government, second one is there are evil people in the world. I think a lot of pacifists in their naivety, usually younger ones, don't understand that. 
There's evil people in this world. Always have been. Governments are supposed to deal with them. Some of the things you see people saying in this mess we're in right now are you got to love them all. You, you know, and that's okay. You can love them all if you want. You can invite them to sleep in your basement. I don't care. But there's evil people in this world. You can pick the most evil people on the planet right now and go over there and, and try to teach Jesus to them. That's okay with me. You may meet Jesus a little sooner than you'd planned to because they're evil. Yeah? The Bible talks about evil people. I know we're in a spiritual warfare, but Satan has co-opted certain people where they get to the point there is no hope. I guess what First John 5 is about. Don't pray for their salvation. They're, they're beyond it. Okay, now you can interpret that different if you want, but I think that's what he's talking about. Because the Bible talks about dealing with evil people. Okay? And let me go that step. I considered not to, but I'm, I'm going to go that way anyway, and I'm going to go slow here for you. Thanksgiving Day, it was raining so hard, and I had Corbin in the car. We were going somewhere, my grandson, and it was raining so hard, and my tires aren't good. I need new ones. I was going to get them before winter, but I was scared of hydroplaning. So we was out on 254, speed limit 75. I was going 50. We're cranking along there just fine, I thought, and pretty soon Corbin says, Granddad, are you aware that you're going 50 miles an hour? I said, yeah, yes, I am. And so I explained it to him. There's rain coming down. Here's what hydroplaning is. i got tires that are getting almost bald, all of that. And he said, oh, okay, I understand. Well, I'm going to slow down at this point. I'm going to go real slow here. I'm not going to tell you this is the answer. I'm not even going to tell you to consider that it's the right answer. I'm going to approach the topic of imprecatory prayer which is prayer that invokes curses or harm on people. That's in the Bible. People in the Bible prayed imprecatory prayers. Prayed God's curses, God's punishment down on certain people. It's done in the Bible. It's not condemned in the Bible. It seems to conflict with Love everybody and love your neighbor and want the best for everybody and all that. It just doesn't seem to go together. So I'm very, very cautious about advocating. And I've never, I think maybe once or twice in my preaching life, I've even mentioned imprecatory prayer. Because I'm not confident enough about it to say, yeah, but it's there. Let me just read you a couple. First, let me read you a definition, explanation. Martin Luther said this. He said, we should pray that our enemies be converted and become our friends. And if not, that their doing and designing be bound to fail and have no success and that their persons perish rather than the gospel and the kingdom of Christ. So he put it in there, we ought to pray first for their souls and all that. If that doesn't happen, and they're evil, and they're against the kingdom, we ought to pray they die. That's imprecatory prayer. Psalm 55, verse 23. 
But you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live half their days. I'll trust you. Pretty harsh. Not as harsh as we're going to see here in a minute. Psalm 58, beginning at verse 6. God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Let them... You ever pour salt on a snail or a slug out in the garden? How gross is that? David prays, let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. See what David was praying for? Psalm 69, pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom you have struck down. And they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. Translated, kill them and send them to hell. That's pretty harsh. But David prayed it. Psalm 139. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Imprecatory prayer. I said I was going to go slow. That means I'm not encouraging that. I'm not telling you to go home and pray like that. I'm just telling you it's in the Bible. It very rarely have I even considered imprecatory prayer. I have prayed some. I prayed those kind of prayers upon the Phelps clan a few years ago. I don't know if I was right or wrong, but to me they were soiling God's name. They were making a mockery of his kingdom and his nature. I prayed that he had rid the earth of them. ISIS and their ilk, people who have slaughtered whole communities of Christ followers, may deserve imprecatory prayer. All right, it may seem like all of this was a lot of uncertainty, and I'm not sure of this, and I'm not sure of that, and some of that's true, but I hope it helped some. I am certain of this. This is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget. Though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus, who died, shall be satisfied, and earth and heaven be won. Our hope is not in horses and chariots. It's not in the U.S. government. Our hope is built on nothing less. And Jesus' blood and his righteousness.
you're not part of the kingdom, you can become his child today. Come, let's stand and sing.